Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of These Go To Eleven. I think I am making history here tonight in that this may be the first ever single host solo These Go To Eleven. And it's going to be uh, a bit short. I am currently sitting in my car while my kid is uh, in his karate, I don't know, was it a dojo? They never call it a dojo, whatever it is. Uh, there, He's uh, like learning how to pull people's spleens out of their nose and everything. So... Um, I am, by the way, going to be going with him to the dad's workout, which I do every year around Father's Day, and it's always like a huge, you know, pain in the butt, lots and lots of sweating and huffing, and I'm not in great shape, and then once you're all sweaty, they're like, okay, now you need to grapple with other sweaty dudes, and I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to do that, but this year, they're doing it at a trampoline park, so that sounds fun, that's uh, neither here nor there, but that's on my mind. So speaking of things that most people probably don't care about, uh, but I am going to talk about anyway, uh, I told everyone in the, these go to 11 discussion group. If you give me some questions, I will do a little, ask me anything, uh, for a shorter ep tonight since Nathan and I could not get our schedules synced up and, uh, he is busy doing school administrator things and, uh, he wanted to record earlier and I was busy doing pastor things. And so we just wound up, uh, missing each other. So we're going to do this and, uh, hopefully we can do something similar with Nathan, uh, next week. So let me uh, just pull these up. There's a number of them, and I'm going to power right through them speed round style, and we'll see how long I go and on which questions I bloviate the longest. First one came from Sawyer Farmer. It's not a question at all. It just says, talk about Avatar for a bit. And Avatar has become kind of a uh, touch point, like uh, the, the place to go for references, gifts, and that sort of thing in the uh, These Go to 11 discussion group, and I am not entirely familiar with it because we're only about halfway through season one, which means uh, we still have two and a half seasons to go. So far, I love it. Uh, it's good. It's I wouldn't say it's way, way better than The Dragon Prince. Uh, a lot of people were like, oh, if you like The Dragon Prince, you'll love this. It's certainly more uh, unique. The world that it has built is really fun and it's done in a very effortless way, which is the only way to, I don't know about the building of the world, but the revealing of it, it's got to be effortless. It's got to feel like you're just, it's got to feel like if you panned left or right, you'd find more of this world, that you're only being shown some of it. Sometimes with the world building, uh, you watch a sci-fi or a fantasy type situation and it feels like if I pan left or right here, even if you're reading a book, you know, saying kind of metaphorically panned left or right, there'd be nothing. Because all there is is the little slice of this place that they're giving me. It's it's not something much bigger and richer like Tolkien, who, who who like literally wrote the Silmarillion, the background to all of his uh, worlds and and races uh, on Middle Earth and the the wars that came before and everything. Because that guy, let's face it, he's held up as this this genius and this giant, and he is. But if he was at your high school, he would not have been sitting at the cool table. Uh, and I, I don't think he went to any high school. I think he went, it's like in like a, I didn't watch the movie. I think he was in an orphanage and like he and his brother would like hide under the stairs and come up with this stuff, which now I feel bad for making fun of him. But yeah, I'm loving Avatar. It's, it feels very, uh, full. It feels like there's a big quest happening, which they, they nicely took their time revealing. I like that. Uh, and now that we know what the big quest is and we see by looking at the DVD case that it's divided up into this last, 
uh, airbender mastering the bending of the other three elements. Uh, and he's got to do it in a very short, so there's a clicking time, a clicking time, a ticking clock, uh, kind of ticking time bomb type situation going on. We're clicking. Maybe the time bomb's clicking. No, it's not ticking because modern day bombs don't tick. But if a package is vibrating, that's a reference from... There's no one to stop me from making random references to uh, Fight Club. Nathan's not here to ground me. So uh, anyway, I'm loving that uh, you have the ticking clock. You have the the very lush world that's been created. It's all done in a very matter-of-fact way. Of course there are flying bison, right? I mean, yeah, we've all seen the flying bison. It's just been a while. Uh, and that's very cool, too. Uh, so I'm, I'm digging it. I can't wait to see. And the fight scenes. I mean, the fight scenes have been amazing. Um, I thought it would be corny. Uh, the idea of someone, you know, shooting air at someone else while they use earth, you know, and it, but it's so intense and so huge. Uh, and I feel like it has both the, the greatest strengths of straightforward cell animation and uh, anime type stuff, uh, which it, it's not. I mean, it's, it's American animators, but it, I feel like it has the strengths of both of those in order to make it feel m- the most epic it can. Uh, so I really like uh, Avatar. Sawyer Farmer said, uh, talk about Avatar a little bit, to which Zach Burnham, uh, my friend, said, talking about it just a little bit seems like it would be hard to do. And maybe you're right, because uh, I just talked about it a uh, medium bit. Uh, Jared, uh, he's, he says, why is Zach the best These Go to Eleven co-host we've had in a while? Um Thanks. I think maybe it's a, there's there's two things here that that really kind of uh, dampen the the compliment. <laughs> First of all, uh, oh, it's the best. I thought it was one of the best. No, it's the best we've had in a while. Um, I mean, it's not like there have been thousands or anything, and I'm rising to the, be the cream of the crop, right? It's not. It, it's not even. Uh, like there's 13, like, you know, who's the best doctor from Doctor Who? There, there's been, there's been three co-hosts and I'm the third one and I'm one of the best. So even if I was the worst of those three, I'd be one of the best. So maybe that's the answer that's, uh, but, but not even, but not even of all three, it's only in the last while. So there's only been two in the last while. So even if I was the worst of those two, I'd still be one of the best. And so that's the answer to the question, that, that uh, logic demands that if I'm only one of two recent co-hosts, I have to be one of the best. Then he follows up with thin crust or deep dish pizza. Uh, definitely deep dish. I'm a deep dish guy. There's a deep dish. Uh, I mean, obviously, everyone wants to go to Chicago to get their deep dish pizza. Gino's East. It's kind of the best thing in the world. Uh, I love it. I loved the original location when I was a kid better before they moved, when there was graffiti all over everything. Now in the new location, last time I was there, they were trying to be like, you can only write here. Dude, on the cups and everything was graffiti. First time I went to Gino's East. And I love deep dish pizza when it's done right, when it's done Chicago style. Um, or Detroit style, for that matter, too. Uh, but I, I love it. I, there's one in town called uh, uh, DeLuca's, which is kind of like this old-time mobstery uh, place way out by the airport. I don't know why there's a thing that pizza places, like, established... Uh, non-chain pizza places are often by airports, uh, like Villa Pianos. Uh, but yeah, that I, I really like it quite a bit. I don't like when um, like chain places try to do a deep dish. Like they they sell a quote-unquote deep dish at Little Slazers, uh, also known as Little Caesars to some. 
and there's a big thing on it that says winner uh, the last three years of best Detroit style uh, pizza uh, in all of Michigan, and I'm like, dude, no, this isn't this isn't even deep dish. It's certainly not Detroit Detroit style. It's certainly not the best. It's not winning any awards. You gave yourself that award. Uh, the world is dying to know LPL. What's LPL? I don't know LPL. I don't know LPL. That's, that's something that's new to me. I know uh, LOL, and part of me thinks maybe it sounds like I'm making fun of a typo, but I actually, for a minute, was like, there must be, there must be something, LP, come up with what LPL means, and then we'll backronym it. Uh, Joshua B. Radabaugh, who has a super cool uh, profile picture. Uh, it's, it's like a, what is that, some kind of effect on it. it. says, as a pastor, how do you address situations where people in a church would rather fellowship with certain members and not others and form a clique? Um... Oh, I, I inflected that weirdly. As a pastor, how do you address situations where people in a church would rather fellowship with certain members and not others, and thus form a clique? Uh, and I think the answer is I I can only encourage people to to welcome new members and certainly to keep an eye out for people in the church who may not be kind of part of a friend group and include them and to be very inclusive. But it's not wrong that uh, people have their close friends. I mean, we're reading the scriptures. We find, I mean, Paul didn't pick up everybody in uh, Lystra. He only got Timothy. Uh, When he was in Troas, he didn't seem to say, all right, everybody can be part of my group. We're all, we're all going to go across the Aegean Sea and head into Europe. He just brought Luke. So, I mean, there, there is a place certainly for friend groups. John Mulaney has this uh, bit uh, about when he was a kid and the teacher told them about the dangers of cliques and he said what's a clique and the teacher said it's when people hang out together and he said oh you mean like having friends and the teacher said no this is dangerous because these friends when they hang out with each other they make fun of other people to which he said oh you mean like having friends <laughs> which may or may not be funny it's definitely it is funny spoiler alert but may or may not be astute hopefully it's not what's going on in churches. If that's the definition of a clique, you know, very closed and almost hostile to other groups. Um, But I heard it, uh, it was Leith Anderson, I think. I was at a a pastor's conference once and he was talking about, now it wasn't Leith, it was was, uh, Tim Brown. He's an American Baptist pastor in Fresno or somewhere out there in California. And, And he was talking about how people are like Legos. And the way that they are is that, you know, if you have a Lego it has a certain number of like circles on the top. So if it has like 22 circles, you can't attach more than 22 circles to the top of that Lego. You can you can put Legos on it and then attach more to those Legos. And in that way you can build a structure, but you can't go beyond what's already, you know, how it's made. And he said in the same way, a lot of times churches try to force people uh, to just completely continually uh, increase their their friend group, their number of connections, and that in a person's life, there's only room for a certain number of connections before they all become superficial. So if you're going to actually have people doing kind of discipleship and and sharing their struggles with each other and stuff and knowing each other deeply, you can't say everyone has to be with everyone a tight friend. People only have a certain number of uh, of linkers there, like a like a Lego. 
Uh, and so he said, what you do is, is you link up new people with new people. You, you very intentionally, if, you know, with small group ministries and stuff, do this one way. We don't have a, per se small group ministries at my church. Uh, we have a men's group, which is fairly small. Um, we all know each other and, and pray for each other and, and hold each other up. We have a women's ministry. We have a, the choir is actually its own kind of small group. They pray with each other. And, and, you know, when someone's in the hospital or when they get home, the choir is bringing them. Uh, if it's a choir member, the choir brings them the meals. So it's almost like it kind of takes care of itself as if it were a, a small group. And we have, you know, kind of organic stuff like that. Uh, if I see someone who seems to not ever be fitting in, um, what we've done is established a welcoming committee, which I, th- I established as kind of a tongue-in-cheek name for it. Like, hey, what are you, the welcoming committee? Yeah, we are. Um, which tries to connect people. Uh, and just, I'll also just send out a Slack message to my deacons and say, look, I saw this person sitting alone three or four times in a row. And uh, it may be that they want to sit alone, but if it's because nobody has invited them, uh, would you like to sit with me? And would you like to come out to dinner with us after the service? Um, Then let's get on that. So I I think that there are people who have gifts of hospitality and reaching out and are extroverted. As a pastor, I know who those people are in my church. And usually I don't have to do anything to kind of activate them. But if someone seems to fall through the cracks, I'll... I'll see if I can get that those people, that group of people with those gifts on it, and they will help introduce them until they come together. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, there are some people who just want to find clicks in a church. You want to get there, say, oh, it's clicky, and I'm not going to land here. I was uh, just talking to a guy a couple months ago about how he hadn't actually belonged to a church in living in this town for something like 25 years. And he's like, well, I tried seven or eight, but they were all clicky. And I'm like, well, how long did you go? Did you go long enough for you to naturally begin to make friendships and enter into friend groups? Because friend groups aren't from the devil. If you call them a click, uh, and that's meant to be a negative thing, there should be something negative going on. And if there's not, uh, I I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they're the worst thing in the world. I think the problem is if someone walks into a church and they see a bunch of clumps of people, and then the church uh, gets to the point in their liturgy, or probably this church doesn't have a liturgy, it's just got an order of service, uh, which is a liturgy. Uh, and it's the part where the church makes the mistake of telling everyone to stand up and shake hands, which is where introverts are like, uh, can I disappear? Uh, is it possible to jump high enough so that a ceiling fan takes my head off and I don't have to deal with this? Uh, and then in that moment of passing the peace or shaking hands or whatever, no one comes and shakes their hand. Uh, it, you can go over the top and too many people can mob them and that feels weird and they feel like a prospect or a p- potential client instead of a, a church member or a uh, visitor. But if no one comes, if everyone's just talking with their buddies because this is the time of week they catch up, that feels really alienating and it feels like you don't see me and you don't care about me. Uh, so A, get rid of that <laughs> greeting time. It's like the number two thing that especially millennials hate about visiting a new church. If there's a greeting time, it's so awkward. It's so forced. Uh, and B before and after church, when there's a natural greeting time, that's not forced and awkward, make sure there are people, not everyone has to do this, but make sure there are people who are going to those visitors and saying, is there anything I do for you? Do you have any questions about what's going on here? Or you know, would you like to sit with us or, uh, you know, it's, and you're on the risk of 
I've got a um, woman at my church who's really good at this stuff, and she's only been going there a few years. And so she'll go up to someone and say, uh, hi, I'm Beth. Uh, what's your name? Uh, welcome to our church. It's nice to have you here. And they'll be like, well, I've been going here for 23 years since I was a kid. And, and she'll be like, Oop, I've been going here for a couple and I, I haven't seen you. So uh, yeah, you run that risk, but it's better to run the, that risk than the risk of someone feeling like they don't matter. They don't fit in and you don't want them to fit in. And, and of course, some churches don't want to grow, not because uh, small churches like that guest we had a little while ago are a biblical concept, which I think they are. Um, the notion of a church that's pastorable by a, a group of overseers, but because it's more a good old boy club, it's it's actually our old friend group. It's a clique or a collection of cliques. And in that case, I don't know what can be done for it. Those churches often just want to be around long enough uh, so that they can do everyone's funeral and then it's okay for them to die. That got dark. I guess I'm moving on. Uh, where do babies come from? Jordan Geringer. Um, let's see. How do I put this? So you've heard of the stork. That's not real. Babies come from moms and dads having sex. Uh, and then when the, the sperm penetrates the egg... Um, it creates a cell, one single cell. It's a single cell, right? It's not two, it's one. Yeah, it's one cell. And that's a miracle, weirdly in itself. Um, and then uh, from that, uh, we'll grow a, a baby. So it splits and splits again, splits again. And uh, and you, you have, um, in terms, scientific terms, like an embryo and then a fetus. Uh, and uh, from the beginning, you've got a unique individual. So... Uh, it's it, the answer is sex, and uh, if you need to know more about that, um, ask your your parents or your pastor. In your in your see, I'm calling shenanigans, man. In your picture, you've got a baby on your shoulders. Are you you didn't know where it came from? You're like, how did this happen? And either how do we make it happen again, or how do we avoid it happening again? And the answer is, if you want it to happen again, sex. All right, moving on. Um, how did I wind up on this thing? Podcast is the podcast feed down. That's a different. That's a different deal. I'm not editing anything here. This is going to be one long. My phone is acting stupid. Here we go. All right, Amber Danielson. Hey, it's nice that we have some females in the group because at first it was a total dude fest, and that's not entirely fun. Um, Got to get some different perspectives in the midst. Not to imply that there's only two sexes, two genders, but but there is only two. Um, in fact, there was a billboard. I'm opening the door of my car. It's hot in here. Sorry if you hear some traffic noise. It's all just ambiance. Uh, there's a there's a billboard that we just saw um, on our way to karate, and it said uh, heart attack symptoms for women are different. And my first thought was, ooh, how long until someone calls that? hateful because what about women who are men so amber says i'd love your thoughts on when christian use the phrase christians use the phrase i don't have a piece about it or i don't have a piece i didn't have peace about it or i don't have a piece about it i feel like this gets used a lot in instances where someone is generally just anxious or doesn't want to do a particular thing p.s i'm not saying that it's never justified example i have someone close to me that tends to say hold on i have to click see more uh, who tends to say this anytime they change their plans or decide against something. Ooh, so a couple people like that one. Including Johnny Crotz, friend of the program. 
Uh, oh, and then there's a follow-up. Full disclosure, I've struggled with anxiety throughout my life. There's definitely been times where I would never, quote, feel a peace about any decision I make. So I'm not going to come down on people who struggle with anxiety. I think that's a... It's one of those things where it's a legitimate observation that often gets used as a escape hatch or a justification. Um, I mean, there are examples of Christians in the first six centuries of the church going to their deaths with absolute peace. So they have peace about a thing that you would never expect someone to have a peace about because of the Holy Spirit within them, because they know where their hope lies, because God in that moment is just giving them the peace that passes understanding, right? The, the peace that doesn't, it can't be understood because it doesn't make sense from a human point of view. Uh, so for example, like, uh, uh, Perpetua, she's one of the first Christian martyrs. Uh, she was a, a Roman woman who was kind of a higher class and she converted to Christianity. She was arrested and given lots of chances to reject it, go back to paganism, didn't do it. And she was so chill and zen and at peace that she was making the executioner like shake and she helped him by guiding the blade to her throat. Uh, that's the kind of peace that, that Christians have had over things. Uh, at the same time, I think when we say I don't have peace about it, we often mean I don't want to do it. And, and honestly, there is a certain level of expecting some desire if God is leading you. For example, I've had people say, I think God is leading me to preach, but I hate the idea of public speaking and I'm super scared and I suck at it. Um, and, and they almost think that that's like the way that God is leading them to preach because they've heard all this junk about you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to do stuff you're scared of because, uh, I can't remember if it was Jesus or Eleanor Roosevelt who said, do one thing every day that scares you. And so if I'm scared to do this, the way to show God, I really love him is to do it and just do it badly, uh, and kind of humiliate myself. Now, maybe God would call someone who's scared to preach to preach. I don't know, but I would say, if someone said to me, I don't really want to do it, but I think God is calling me to do it. I'd say, how do you determine that God wants you to do it then? Um, there's the old sermon illustration of the three points that lined up for a boat. A boat coming in at night would try to line up these three points. So they were points of light. So they were one, like one light instead of three. And so like, I think it's counsel from other Christians, the Bible's uh, teaching on the matter and internal compulsion, unction, whatever, desire. Um, but when I was talking to my, my sister about this at one point, she said, listen, there was a time I knew that God wanted me to, to part ways with someone in a, a relationship I was in, and I didn't want to do it. I just knew I had to do it. And then I had to kind of reevaluate it. Uh, so I think when someone says, I don't have peace about this, uh, they're, they're probably nine times out of ten looking for something that doesn't tie them up in knots inside. Uh, a lot of stuff Jesus calls us to do does push us out of our comfort zone. Uh, I never have peace about um, confronting someone about sin. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a level of peace, a deeper peace, where I know God's with me, the Spirit is, is not letting me alone. In fact, not having peace about not doing it is often the way that God leads us, right? Convicting us giving us, you know, uh, uh, I, I can't rest until I've done this. 
Uh, and at the same time, on a more shallow surface level, I don't want to do it. If there was some reason I didn't have to, I'd jump at it. I'd grab it. Even Jesus saying, you know, if you if there's any way to take this this cup from me, I don't want to do this, but I know it's your will. And, and so when someone says I don't have peace about this, uh, I just have to ask, what do you mean by that? Because if what you mean is it doesn't sit perfectly well with me in the flesh, who cares? What does the scripture say about it? What is the Holy Spirit leading you on a deeper level to do? Are, are you maybe feeling a lack of peace about not doing it? Uh, are, you, are you confusing some things? Uh, and what do other mature Christians you know tell you you ought to do in a given situation? And, and so if, if someone's go-to, I think the reason it's popular is because I can't check that. I don't, I don't have peace about this inside of me. Well, I can't, I can't say yes, you do, or no, you don't, or, or anything. Uh, likewise, you know, when, when prominent Christians will, say, break their marriage vows and say, I think God has released me from this marriage, or God has given me a pass on following this or that commandment, um, I feel it inside. I feel a peace about it. And I'm over here going, what you feel is irrelevant. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and so you can't even know it. You can't know if you're being led astray by your own heart. So, yeah, you, you need to follow the scriptures. You need to involve more people if it's a difficult issue and not just go by uh, what makes you feel good inside or gives you a warm fuzzy. That said, one factor in knowing what God's will is, after you've looked at the scriptures and determined the scriptures would permit me to go one of two ways, after you've talked to other people and gotten wise counsel and they say, either way, you're not, you know, you're not doing anything foolish, then Maybe going with what gives you, you know, I have a sense of peace about uprooting and moving somewhere else. It should freak me out, but strangely it doesn't. But a lack of that, I don't think, it's just too often a cop-out. Uh, and if, if you're checking with uh, your sense of peace or nonsense of peace before you're checking with Scripture, you're doing it backwards. You've got the, the cart before the horse. Uh, let me back out of that one. And, and uh, man, I'm really, I'm really rambling. Star Wars or Star Trek? John Dunbar asks. Well, I'm not a big fan of either, but Star Trek seems like the most boring thing in the world to me. And I at least have enjoyed some Star Wars stuff. So definitely not Star Trek. Uh, Mike Clymer says, uh, "LOL." I know that one. It's laugh out loud or lots of luck or lots of love. I think it's laugh out loud. iPhone or Android? If you want a more, in fact, I just interrupted myself because I'm so ADD. Uh, did you ever see that thing where someone said, Grandma died, LOL. It was like a baby boomer texting her daughter. And she's like, what? Why is that funny? And she's like, what do you mean funny? It's not funny. Watch your mouth. And she's like, you just said LOL. Yeah, that means lots of love. Um, Android or iPhone? I'm, I'm an Android guy. Um, I, I had an Apple IIc. In 1985, I still have that Apple IIc, and I love it. I have some old iPods, an iPod Nano, and a couple that are a little older than that. Um, and I use them every night. I actually listen to, like, white noise while I sleep using my iPods. But anything beyond that, phones or computers, I'm strictly Android and uh, PC guy. Uh, or, if you want a more controversial one, Mike says, favorite Bible translation and why? My favorite at the moment is the ESV, 
And just because I'm reformed and that's what you're supposed to say. No, I think because uh, I've just been preaching out of it since it came out. Uh, and you have to pick one, right? You have to... The, the, the CSB is, is good too. And I got the... At the Doc and Devo conference, I got the Spurgeon Study Bible, which is a Christian Standard Bible translation. And as I've read through that, it's it had, nothing about it has freaked me out or made me feel like the ESV is way better. Um, the NIV is, is good. I prefer the 84 to the new one, but the new one's good too. I think it's a 2011. The 2011 is good. Um, but if you don't pick one, you're going to wind up unable to memorize verses because you're going to learn them in this. And we already all have like a bunch of fragments left over from Awana or VBS or whatever of King James, uh, if you're in your mid-30s or older probably, I don't, depending on your tradition, King James Bible translations. And then uh, it, you get the NIV in there and you started to kind of combine them and turning it into a mishmash. You got to pick one and really stick with it. And, and uh, yes, it's good to have uh, a word for word, like uh, the original NASB before they destroyed it in the mid late nineties, like, uh, the, uh, ASV of the King James. And then it's good to have some on hand, some, uh, dynamic equivalents or functional equivalents like the, the ESV, uh, the, uh, NIV 2011 or whatever. And it's good to have some paraphrases even. Uh, but don't call those Bibles. Call them paraphrases. I'm talking about the voice, the message even. These are all good to have for Bible study. So you're you're getting, you know, start with the most um, kind of, what's the word I'm going to woodenly accurate, even weird word order. Most of these will try and maintain. Uh, and then from there, move toward more free translation uh, as you study, as you prepare lessons and stuff like that. But in your devotional reading, I have a big proponent of having one. And for me, that's just the English Standard Version. I started reading it. I started memorizing in it. And I, if I move to something else, then I have to start all over. And that's no good. Uh, although on Mimi Reads the Bible, uh, another podcast that I do with a, a friend of mine, uh, we we change up every week to different translations just for fun, just because it's fun. Um, Joshua B. Radabaugh says... Dang it, people, participate. Uh, because I said I needed a few more and, and nobody was giving any more. Uh, so thanks, Joshua, for that. Um, and then John Kratz uh, said, what you reading? And I should tell him I'm reading something by John Kratz. I'm, I'm reading uh, Graciousness. That was a great book. Remember that? Uh, but I'm not. I'm not at the moment. Uh, what I am reading is a book called The Great Halifax Explosion. It's crazy interesting. I heard a little snippet about it on uh, uh, National Public Radio. They Here in Michigan, they run uh, pieces from the Interlochen Writing Festival or, or something like to that effect, writing series, author series. And it's authors talking about their works up at this elite fine arts camp in northern Michigan. And uh, John U. Bacon is the guy who wrote it. He's a New York Times bestseller. And it's about an explosion that happened uh, in, in during World War I in uh, Halifax, which is in Canada, uh, I think Nova Scotia. I don't know. I haven't really started. I've read just the first few verse, uh, verses, pages. Um, and what, what drew me in is he said, 
what I really want to dispel is a couple of myths. The first one is that the atom bomb had no precedent, that it was completely unlike anything that came before it, when in fact it wasn't. It was a couple times bigger or a few times bigger than the Halifax explosion, and those people working on the atom bomb actually studied the Halifax explosion. And I'm over here going, I've barely heard of the Halifax explosion. And then the second thing he said was, another myth is that when things go wrong and society, you know, kind of the the, uh, foundations of society break down, uh, people all turn to their worst selves and start looting and killing and stealing. and, um, And he said this Halifax explosion and what came after it is proof that that's not always the case. In fact, often when uh, things are at their worst, people come to their best. And and I always like things that challenge my Calvinism in that way. Um, Stories, like one of my favorite uh, videos online that I've watched like 30 billion times is, uh, it's it's on Twitter. And um, if you search my Twitter history, you'll find, I'll try and find it, retweet it. Uh, A guy goes into, I think it's in Thailand. It's somewhere in Asia. I think it's in Thailand. Guy goes into a um, police station with a, a knife, like a kitchen knife. And there's words on the screen. It basically says, this guy is just trying to get himself killed. He's at his wits end. He doesn't know what to do. And so he just runs in there with this knife and he's threatening with it. And the cop is huge and he's got a big gun on his hip. And instead of drawing the gun, he goes, he like puts down the gun. It's been a while since I watched it. Um, he like, disarms the guy, knocks the knife out of his hand, and then he hugs him. And uh, and the guy just kind of collapses into this guy's huge arms and starts crying. And it says that he finds out that just everything's gone wrong for this guy. He was a songwriter. He had to sell his guitar uh, because his whole, you know, everything in his life, especially financially, was just like spiraling out of control. And that uh, he didn't get charged with anything. The cop refused to, to press charges and he had another guitar, an old guitar of his that he could give the guy. And that kind of thing, I, I don't cry when things are sad very easily, which is good because I do a lot of funerals, but dude, I'll cry when things are happy. Easily. Uh, and, and things that challenge my Calvinism, uh, like the way that Bostonians apparently just without any hesitation sent tons of help to our uh, Canadian neighbors there, that's that's good stuff, and it's good for us who are are reformed. I think to be reminded that total depravity doesn't mean no one has any good in them. Uh, in fact, uh, common grace is a very important part of reformed anthropology, understanding of what what human beings are like. And I mean, all of us know people who aren't Christians, don't purport to be Christians, and are some of the kindest and most generous people we know. And and our theology better have an explanation for that and it better all fit together nicely. And if you are tend if you tend like I do toward overemphasizing that just everybody's bad. In the words of uh it was Dr. Perry Cox on uh uh Scrubs, uh Dr. Cox said that people are bad coated bastards with bad filling, I think. And that that uh I'm tempted to go, haha, that's just like what John Calvin taught. And I don't think so. Um, I don't think that's a good understanding of the state of humans. Yes, when you read Romans, uh, the first, you know, you're, you're reading Romans 4, 5, and 6 going, okay, everybody's bad, one through uh, four especially. You're thinking everybody's really bad. Uh, and apart from unilateral work of Christ, yes, we all tend toward, you know, there's none that seeks God. There's none that is that is righteous. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing good in us. 
the I had a great sermon illustration on accident the other day. I bought a new phone because my phone screen broke and I brought it to the repair place and they're like, well, this $100 phone would cost $170 to fix its screen. And I was like, you're insane. Goodbye. Um, so I bought a new one and it arrived in the mail and I unboxed it and I brought it in the car. I was going to see if I could set it up during my lunch at the church. And when I, <laughs> when I got out of the car, thing fell out of my hand because I'm clumsy, landed face down. And before it had ever been used, set up anything, it had barely even been powered on once the screen broke, but it wasn't like completely shattered so that the glass fell out. Naturally, it was like spider webbed, but it was still there. And if I hit the power button, you could still see the display. It was fractured, it was shattered, it was broken, but it was still present. And that's what, what the, the God's image, the image of, of God and what we were intended to be and do to glorify God, I mean, it's all still there, it's just fractured. And so that gives us common ground with people who are not regenerate. It's not a us versus them, like the culture war wants you to believe. And so I'm reading uh, this book because I, I'm interested in, in things historical and I, I'm interested in explosions, but also I'm interested in reading a story that's going to remind me of the good in human hearts, even deceitful, desperately wicked human hearts. Uh, and, and what does that say about how good God made us? That even after this fracturing, there's still good left. Um, and what does it say about how much more generous, loving, kind, forgiving, and, and merciful we should be once that's been restored in us? Once redemption has, has been applied to us and, and uh, the forgiveness of sins borne out in us, uh, we should look all the more kind. Uh, to the world. They should be able to look and see a difference. Uh, and often, I'm afraid, the difference they see is that we're quicker to judge and condemn and throw people away. Uh, so that's what I'm reading. John, I think you would like that um, from what we've, interactions we've had and, and, and stuff. Uh, the, it's, so it's called The Great Halifax Explosion by John U. Bacon. And what a great name, right? Bacon? Uh, and then finally, Mike Clymer says, what do you think your life would be like if you were not saved? I have never thought of that before. Seriously, I'm not being sarcastic. Um, I mean, I thought about stuff uh, that, you know, like, well, but for the grace of God, I would be in the same position as this person that I'm ministering to, so don't, you know, think of yourself as better. Trying to check pride or whatever, because I got saved at a really young age. Like, people often question whether I was really saved when I tell them if, if they're, um, you know, if, if they're really into having to see the fruit and, and having to understand a lot of the doctrine, right. And having to see repentance, uh, because I was like four, uh, and I, my dad prayed a sinner's prayer one line at a time and I repeated it. And for a long time there, like in Bible college, I assumed I hadn't been saved then because I'm going, well, I didn't die to myself. And, you know, I, I didn't understand even the most basic core doctrines of the, the faith. I couldn't have I was probably a heretic 10 times over because I didn't have any sense of the Trinity. I didn't, but I did know Jesus died for my sins. I did know I was a sinner and I did know that I needed him to, to forgive me and, and that I couldn't earn salvation. I had to be given it uh, by, by God's love and, and by his grace. Uh, and so having been saved really young, it, there's not really a trajectory for me to follow. Like there are guys at my church 
Like, I mean, when I talked to Alex Police uh, on a previous episode, and he talked through kind of some of his testimony, he could probably go back five years to when he got saved and just draw a straight line that doesn't diverge at that point and go toward Christ and say, oh, I would have kept going in this direction. Uh, and I think he kind of even did that. Great app, by the way. If you haven't heard that one, uh, you should check that out. But I don't have that. I mean, like, what was I into then? Like, coloring and... Uh, you know, I was, I was pretty into these guys called Husky Helpers, which were like construction worker and policeman, like action figures. Um, and I, after I got saved, I was still into those. So it's hard to draw a line and see. But at the same time, I can look into my heart and say, in my flesh, I tend toward, I tend toward extremes being super into, like this is why I, one reason why I don't drink. I don't drink partially because I think it tastes bad. Like every time someone's like, no, 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 this, this is a different kind of beer. This is a, this is a really good hipster microbrew. I'm like, I'll try it, but I'm not going to like it. No, you'll like it. And I'm like, yeah, just sort of tastes like I imagine pee would taste. Uh, and when people say, oh, this mixed drink is really good. I say, well, I like the sweet part of it, but I don't like the medicine part. I'm not sick, so I don't need medicine. So that's one reason. But another reason is because like I, I tend toward extreme almost obsessive, you know, approach to things. And, and that can be good. Uh, it can be good when I get into, um, really regimented reading of the scriptures and prayer and self-denial and, and helping others and, 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 uh, caring for my family and stuff. And it can be bad. And it's been bad for me sometimes. Um, I can, I can get into things a lot to the point where I actually ignore, uh, things that I should be doing. I, I neglect uh, proper care of, uh, my, my parishioners and my family. If I get in and I have to check myself and go, no, 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 you're, you're, you're getting off track. So I, I think based on that, I probably had, I gone to college and been open to, uh, the party scene and stuff. I think I probably would be addicted to some substances at this point. I, I really could see me going that way. Um, I would, I think I would be doing it in a way that was very functional because I also am very good at uh, kind of telling myself you're not being mastered by something even when it becomes kind of a compulsion for me. Uh, I, I know I have a, a tendency toward anger, uh, a desire for revenge, and I mean, even on the way here, like somebody cut me off and I had to remind myself it's not worth risking the life of my kid in the back seat to cut them off and get ahead of them and win. Um, and without the progress I've made in sanctification in that area, I think I would be a very, very angry person. I'm not tough enough to like have joined a gang or something, but I think I would be the kind of guy who would just burn a bridges left and right. Um, I have a tendency toward not controlling my tongue. That's the greatest area of sanctification that I keep asking God to help me with. Um, like I heard my dad, uh, swear once I was, uh, in the back seat of his car. He was driving my sister and I home from somewhere. And I said, I had to pee. And I was like three. And, uh, he was like, we're almost home. Just don't worry. And I said, no, no, no you need to stop so I can pee somewhere. He's like, no, we're almost home. Just hold it. And I, I, I remember this. I remember going all the way back, man. I remember, I remember everything. I don't remember being born, but, uh, I remember stuff going way back. And I remember thinking, uh, you're going to regret not stopping and just letting it go. And he turned around and said, damn it, Zachary. And then 
I remember, I remember this really well. We were going over the Veterans Bridge in Bay City, Michigan. Uh, and he pulled over and he turned back toward me. My God, my dad is such a godly man. And he said, okay, I'm sorry that I got angry and I maintenance swear. Maintenance is Dutch for may not. I maintenance swear, but you should not have done that. I know you could have held it. Um, I peed in his car. He said the D word, and then he immediately apologized, repented. Uh, so that's where the bar is for me. My son cannot point to the one time he heard me say a, you know, a, a word that you can say in G-rated movies. You know, I mean, like I struggle with that. So I think I would have a a very foul mouth. Um, and uh, you know, I, again, I think there's different standards. All that stuff is very cultural. Uh, what words can be said in what setting? I wouldn't have quoted Perry Cox from the pulpit, but, you know, I think it's, (laughs) no one's going to be overly, uh, listening to this podcast is going to be overly uh, uh, scandalized or or, uh, caused to stumble by that. Uh, But even with that, the difference between him growing up in a a rural, you know, a a farmhouse with 10 brothers and sisters and not being able to ride his bike on the Lord's Day um, and, and me living now and where I do and when I do, I, I have a lot, a long way to go to be able to control. So I, I think in summation, this this is ending dark, but in summation, I would be an angry, cursing, lying, um, what else did I say? Probably uh, a, a drunk uh, jerk. Um, that's, not everybody who's not saved falls down all those rabbit holes, but I think those are the ones that would be uh, possible uh, temptations and snares for me. Probably not all of them, but at least a couple of those. You know, I would have checked a couple of those boxes. Uh, And, you know, it's easy to look back too and see where God has been leading me and say, well, what if he hadn't been? And I think that's, that's a good exercise. I think everyone probably ought to take some time to ask themselves, where would I be apart from Christ? Uh, because we can look at where we are now, and the weird thing about sanctification is the more holy you get, the more little sins, smaller sins, and, and there are no little sins, but there are smaller sins. Every sin's not the same. I, I can't stand when people try to say that. From Yes, from a salvific point of view, you've broken one law, you've broken them all, you're not going to be able to keep the law and, and keep the uh, covenant of works. But as far as... Uh, offending God, certainly some things are worse than others. That's clear throughout the Bible. Uh, for example, sexual sin is, is a sin against one's own body. Um, you know, no one's getting stoned to death in the Old Testament for uh, lying about, you know, uh, the size of the fish they caught. But if you take the Lord's name in vain, you're in trouble. So there's different sins. And, and oh, now I've I've gotten so so many parentheses deep. I'm gonna have to slowly pull myself back out. Oh yeah. So as you. <laughs> As you're sanctified, the smaller sins, they they have a bigger effect on you. And so it almost feels sometimes like you're not making any progress. Because there's never a time where you're like, ah, oh, no conviction. And no, you overcome this sin and then something else, the Holy Spirit convicts you. Because that's what he's doing. He's sanctifying you, bringing you down the road toward being like Christ. And so maybe it is a really good uh, exercise to say, where would I be uh, if not for Christ? It's important to say, where was I five years ago and see the, the progress that you've made. But that's, that's a good question. Where would I be if I was not saved and give God all the glory for the fact that you're not there? Um, 
you know, I, I think I would probably be, I think I would be rich. I, I really do. I was a very, very uh, uh, good student. I didn't always get all A's, but I always understood everything. And uh, I, I think that if I had taken the passion of my life and turned it toward, like, being Alex P. Keaton, you know, getting a lot of money, having a, a penthouse uh, apartment and a, a office up on a steel and glass building somewhere, I think I could have accomplished it. I think I could have uh, gone down a very 80s bleak road of uh, nose candy and women and been... Uh, quote-unquote happy on the surface and been just broken, empty, and dark on the inside. Uh, and thank God I'm not rich. Uh, give me neither poverty nor riches, uh, as, as it says in the scriptures. Thank God uh, I don't have all those trappings of uh, human success and everything I ever could want at my fingertips. Thank God I have enough for today and uh, life that is simple and a, a vocation that is fulfilling to me and gives glory to God. That's, that's good stuff. And, uh, that's where I am now and I'm not where I need to be all the way, but if I look at the trajectory at the moment, I think I'm moving in the right direction. God is working in me, moving me in the right direction. Um, that's all the questions. Hold on. Let me make sure no one added any in the meantime. I hope not because it's, almost time to go pick up the boy and then he always wants to fight me he always he always insists that we actually fight and he's only 11 but man he punches I'm kidding we don't fight we spar sometimes no that's all the questions thanks for sending them and uh, thanks for listening to me ramble on and uh, Nathan if you are listening I just rocked the casbah these go to 11.